0: It was not a dream. The weekend came and went and all of is still a buyout. He still got bought out by the Vancouver Canucks. Welcome to the Monday edition of Canucks Central. with Seth R. Shaw with Bik Nazar. And as always, you can get in touch with us on our, on our Dunbar Lumber text inbox, 650-650-Dunbar 650, 650 Lumber. With three stores to serve you and Ladner on Bridge Street, Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. A lot to get to today. Our good friend Frank Cervalli is going to join us coming up in the next segment. Then a bit later, we'll talk to Don Taylor as well to break down what the Canucks did on the week on Friday leading into the weekend buying out Oliver ekman larsson and what is next for the organization as they have money to burn now and a roster to improve and their sights set on the postseason so it's going to be a lot of fun with the NHL draft less than two weeks away now Bick, just about what 10 days away at this stage we're getting to the point now where this week later this week we can nine say days. 9 days later, later this week we can say the, the draft is a week away less than a week away we're almost there and free agency also just around the corner the Canucks with some flexibility they have a chance now to improve their roster in a meaningful way but as always people are a bit scared people are a bit skeptical people are a bit curious to find out how they're going to improve the team and whether a bit they can avoid some of the pitfalls they've found themselves in in the past
1: it's uh you know we talked about the opportunities that are now presented and now open yes and now that you got through the the moment of like hey there's actual cap space the the, the euphoria it's probably worn off over the weekend. And now the fear sets in. What if they misspend the cap space? <laughs> what if they do this? <laughs> now that there's opportunity, what do those opportunities actually look like? And what would they actually lead to? And look, they've shown through their habits, they have assets, they'll spend them. They have cap space, they'll spend it. Well, now they have cap space. They do. How is it going to get spent?
0: They have cap space. They have ambition. And, well, I don't think they're afraid and, to and spend And they're not somebody. shy. No. Right? Oh.
1: Like, like this move here, even just with the ekman Larson buyout, it requires some courage. And we've talked about ambition and misguided ambition. There is no staleness to Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvine. They are willing to take some big swings, and they're willing to take on the negativity to build something that's in their vision. And that's what we talked a lot about on Friday, is they are not going to try to make things work that the previous regime's ideas... They're here for their own ideas only, and anything that was precursor to them, unless they sign off on it, like a JT Miller, Quinn Hughes, Elias Pedersen, Thatcher Demko, everything else, at some point, I
0: suspect, is you have to earn the check mark from us, otherwise
1: you're part of the rot.
0: And in in terms of us trying to figure out what this team is going to do, when they tell us things in the future, perhaps, about certain players that have no logical reason to stay or no logical reason of it working here. And right. they say, hey, we're still open to it. What does that tell us? It tells us probably that follow the logic with these guys. Don't follow yeah. the words so much. Follow the actions. Yeah. And, you
1: know, in 18 months, have they turned over enough of the roster? No, but, and there's a lot of fresh names on here that we didn't see in twenty. Uh, 20, basically. So if you look at the
0: roster currently, and if, okay, if you want to include, if you, let, let's not include, put Colson and Hoaglander, mm-hmm. you know, prospects or whatever, right? So Pedersen, Garland, Miller, Besser, Myers, Hughes, Demko. Those are the guys left over. And, you know, Tanner Pearson, obviously still mm-hmm. going through his thing or whatever, but we're talking about like f- from guys that the previous regime brought in, big draft picks or big acquisitions, that's it. That's all that's left. And if they have their way, two or three or more of those mm-hmm. guys are going to be off that list as well.
1: Again, this is like Conor Garland. It's
0: going it's to get back to what we talked about. It's like There's five or six guys, yeah. and that's it.
1: This is going to be Garland's third season in Vancouver.
0: If if he gets hit. And if. if he gets there. So when they when we hear about Connor Garland, for instance, I think with him, they've been pretty honest about what they've been trying to do and, and how he fits or doesn't fit. It seems like with Besser, there seems to be at least a more logical pathway for him to be on the roster and also how difficult it is to move a winger making 6.65 on the cap. But here's here's what I believe this team is looking to do, Big. Like, I think not only are they looking to improve the team, they're looking to improve it in a significant way. And I don't think they're afraid at all to sign players to big contracts. I don't think they're afraid at all to acquire big-name players. Now, the question is, how willing are you and how aggressive are you slash reckless? Because if you go too aggressive, you kind of become reckless, and that's going to be the question here. I still would be surprised if they sign guys in their 30s to big contracts. Mm-hmm. But hey, we'll find out coming up in, in a little bit time here. But like I mentioned on Friday after we heard about the OEL buyout that the interest in Severson is telling and I gather that they're not afraid of signing players or, or adding a player like him to a big contract with this team like I, I don't think they're just looking to patch things over here I think if they can find a significant piece or two they're very much open to doing that so with Severson off the market then
1: can we take notes of that prototype to say they're willing to splurge some cash on a right shot D-man a sizable D-man like what pieces do we take away from the interest in Severson and what he ended up getting as well?
0: So I think what's telling is they love to get another premium position player, right? Like a, another righty D. Because if you look at their organizational depth chart, they, they have no righties coming. Yeah. Now, now, if even if they draft well, Philip Johansson,
1: is is again? It's they a, have him.
0: Yes, but that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Bick, right? Like it's essentially that one guy. Everybody else kind of lefties and. Anybody else beyond that, you're really making a projection here. You're really kind of stepping out. So if they draft a righty defenseman, maybe that changes the equation slightly. But but really, there is no there's no clear succession plan. There's no, like, in L.A., it was like, it's Brian Clark, it's Helga Granz, it's You have these these succession plans. Yes. Yes. Like there isn't that one that that stares you in the face face and says, this is very compelling for Vancouver yet. So I think they love to add it. Now, one thing we've also seen from this team though, Vic, is just because they can't add their number one priority target, it doesn't mean they wouldn't go after another priority target that might be lesser on the list. Mm -hmm. But that may be what's available, for instance, right? Like, hey, maybe you don't want to sign another winger, but if you need another one and you have the space to do it and you can't find the other guys you need, do they go and get a barbershop type? And these are the types of questions I kind of wonder about with this team is. And I think they're fluid. And just look what they did last offseason. Everyone knew they wanted to improve the defense. Mm -hmm. They had to subtract from the defense. And even so, they're still trying to add to the defense when they could. They couldn't make anything happen. But they still made an addition with Mikheyev because they saw an opportunity, what they felt they needed. And they weren't going to bypass signing him and Kuzmenko just because they have other priorities that were bigger. So just because we look at it and say priority 1 should be a two, b and, you know go a b c d in terms of priority list well if you can't get a and b do you just forget about c and d if they're available and that's kind of what i wonder about right. so like when we look at severson and say hey who's the other severson type mm-hmm. is this a fool's errand because if you can't you know identify the next one then what are you chasing for then do we go to number number 2 on the list and is it a lefty d that you're okay, looking so at
1: so on friday we talked about the needs that are available now, right? Yeah. Like, th- there's a hole that's open. We didn't necessarily talk about it in how the cap resources are going to go dedicated to these actual needs. But let's say that there's a, you know, because they've opened up cap space here, yeah, and they find themselves today prior to making any sort of moves in the range of six and a half million dollars. Let's say you're going to dedicate four and a half. You can make one primary big acquisition as of today this offseason. Is it right D, is it left D, or is it third line center? For me Well oh, actually and the fourth uh need that we we're talking about was uh the four checking winger.
0: Yeah. I'd still say just defense, right? Like I'd say if you can't get the right E D, get the left D Like look at the defense. They are they're, they're mm-hmm. down they're down at least one top four defenseman. At least and I'm being kind here saying sure, one. Yeah. Because that's assuming you don't move Myers and you want to keep him in the top four type of deal. As far as warm bodies, they need one. As far as high level functioning play, they need two. Right, and if you can't get your top priority brighty target, isn't it isn't isn't it easier potentially here for you to go and sign Luke Shen? to a two-year deal at a million and a half or whatever it is, or 1.25. You patch it over until Bear comes back. You move Myers to the deadline, potentially. You save your assets, and then, hey, you maybe go after a bigger name if he becomes available in the trade market, like Horonic did, or somebody else becomes available in a year's time. And you keep your powder dry and have some assets now to go and pedal and get that. Because mm-hmm. I think that might be the better way to go about it on the righty side of things. The thing I'm trying to figure out is what their true target is as far as what they want to do on the, on the left side of defense. It- yeah, that's the thing. Is like,
1: is there a name that you kind of look at going into this off season? Is it a free agent? Is it in the trade market? Because there are There's, more lefty names in the free agent market. It's not an overwhelmingly uh, inspiring list, but there just is more names as far as lefty D men. Uh, like a Ryan Graves does headline this again fits
0: the role too of what they're looking for as well. That's the other part of it. Well, I think I think the profile is more important. I think than it. first we have to identify what the profile is. Mm-hmm. They don't need, they don't need a lefty offensive defenseman. No, they don't. Need a, they don't need a lefty defenseman who doesn't PK, who's not a great five on five player. They need a, a lefty who is good defensively and can help the PK. Hey, same thing for the righty defenseman. Now, obviously. That's why maybe Severson seemed like the perfect candidate because not only can he move the puck decently, he's good defensively. He can play on the PK. He plays a premium position. But if you can't get everything, what what's the thing you can't live without? I don't think you can live without another defensive D man, or at least somebody who's decent defensively in mm. PK. If you go look at that type of availability list, sure there are some cheaper guys to look at. But if you're looking at two guys that can be meaningful, there's only there's only two players on the list list that fit the profile to a T. That could give you even above that, but they're not going to be cheap. It's Orlov and Ryan Graves. And Orlov, a bit older, and even a bit smaller. I really like the player. I like the player too, but not a huge player. Mm -hmm. If you're looking for size, Ryan Graves, 6'4". Now, Ryan Graves isn't as physical as you would think for a guy his size, but he knows how to break the cycle up. He's Mm -hmm. good on the PK block shots. He can do a lot of different things for you. The question just is, on a... Than in a thin free agent pool, and when everybody's watched these big defensemen have success in the postseason this season, how much do you have to pay for a guy like that? All of a sudden, is it worth overpaying for a guy in free agency just because he fits a need? And I think that's what, as much as Ryan profile I and mean, Ryan Graves profiles well, yeah is it actually worth the amount of money you would have to spend on that type of player when you can maybe trade for a player like that instead?
1: Uh, Austin Langley, 650-650. Canucks are, aren't afraid to acquire big-name players. Sat starting off the show with nightmare fuel. <laughs> and look, like they will spend the cap space. Oh, yeah, of like, course. They are going to make one big acquisition because they now have the space to do it. They need okay. Yeah, they I, have I, two I,
0: top-four if... defensemen. They need, they need two more top-four defensemen. Is a top-four defense considered a big acquisition? Do we consider top four defensemen big acquisitions? But it's more... Yes. Is, is they defense, need two top four Is,
1: D-men. is defensive d the one that you're like, oh, yeah, that's that's the one that I want to spend close to $5 million on? I don't think so. That's the terrifying
0: one for me. It is. but And, and that's why when we look at the free agent market on it, it's not compelling. It's not compelling. It's not, To me, it's not compelling to go and pay Ryan Graves all this type of money can you get a defensive D somewhere that's maybe slightly overpaid in the trade market instead? Now, hey, that gives you other nightmare fuel because you're like, hey, now we're trading for another overpaid defense. Mm -hmm. We just got rid of an overpaid defense. You want to trade for another one? Well, can somebody give you something for it? Somebody texted in and said, Brandon Carlo. Yeah,
1: I was about to read that text.
0: And I think that's, that's the obvious name that we've bandied about for a few years here. I mean, he's not too old, 26. Good on the PK. Good defensively. One of the better defensive guys in the league. He was somewhat sheltered this year, though. Five on five on a good Boston team. So, it makes me just wonder. Sure, but what, okay, what role would he play here? He'd be playing with Quinn Hughes. It's, you can you can be sheltered playing as Quinn Hughes. Right. That's but that's the thing. It is, right? So but regardless, he's probably because he's got four years left on his contract, mm-hmm. he's owed like 18 million almost in salary. It's a significant amount of money. And it's a bit more than guys like Good Branston and and these guys got. And you can make the argument that he's kind of in that same category to some degree, even though he's better, right? What I'm trying to say is I don't think it's gonna cost a premium for you to get Brandon Carlo. It shouldn't cost a premium for you to get that Brandon Carlo. Boston's in a in a in a precarious cap situation. They're in a cap squeeze, yeah. a big time cap squeeze. We know all about it in Vancouver. They find themselves in a bigger one in, in Boston right now. They have five million dollars of cap space,
1: and they have I think fifteen guys signed.
0: Yeah. Now, you know, forgive me for this. I know Canucks fans won't like hearing this, but I went down a Bruins rabbit hole this weekend, and I did this because I'm trying to figure out trade targets mm-hmm. and, and situations, looking at cap situations. If Boston buys out Riley and trades Brandon Carlo, they can fill out the roster and sign one of Orlov and Bertuzzi. So there is a way for mm-hmm. Boston, and, and that's assuming they bring Bergeron and Krejci back on one-year deals with bonuses like they did this year, and they kind of figure it out the same way they did that this past season. There's a world where they can do that, but they have to move a contract, at least one, at the very least one. And that's why they're in a bit of a squeeze situation. What would you be willing to do for a player like him? Are you willing to give something up? Do you mm-hmm. want something back in return? That might be the better way to go about it because if you're saying, if you say give Ryan Graves five times five because the free agent market's nuts, well, that means it's even more than Carlo's getting paid. I'd rather give up an asset and give up less and and find a guy in the premium position instead playing the righty. Now he has concussion issues in the past and that scares you somewhat, but there's going to have to be a risk somewhere. Are you taking the risk in free agency where you're overpaying or do you do do it cheaper via trade potentially, as long as you're not giving up a premium asset.
1: So here's the thing is we've canceled off. Okay. The righty free agent D man. It's an uninspiring list. We crossed that off. Ryan Graves is the only one that jumps out as someone you're going to spend Four and a half, five million dollars on on free agency. So you can kind of cross that need on, and it goes back to a name you mentioned a few minutes ago. Like if if the needs that we're talking about, D men and free agency are gone, then if you're going to go spend some money, it's probably going to be up at, at front, up front. And you mentioned
0: Barbashev a few yeah. minutes ago. And I mean, and I and I wonder if you can—he's a guy who can play center, but he's not a center. Mm-hmm. Like, if you think Barbashev is going to come to Vancouver and be the end-all, be-all third-line center for this team, you're going to be mistaken. He can play center when need be. He's not great in face-offs. He's not a great PK center. I, I really love the player. I love the player. I mean, hey, you know what? Like, profile-wise, mm-hmm. think of it this way, right? Like, what, what else do we say about this Canucks uh, forward group? They're lacking the tenacity, the speed, mm-hmm. and the forward-checking to play this type of style. Rick talk it wants right. So, if you have Mikheyev, who plays that style really well with Kuzmenko and Pedersen, they can fly. If you have Barbership with Miller, all of a sudden, now you have that duo. It's You know what he is? He's, he's hes faster and better Tanner Pearson, essentially. Yes. You know, which makes an impact, especially if he's hes able to play the way he's able to play. And he's, he
1: is such a smart player. He's a very
0: smart player. But that,
1: it's not the primary need. Like It's not. We,
0: we listed that on Friday. It's like the fourth need. It need. is. It is the fourth need. It is, like, and I don't think you're not solving the center. So I'm I'm just looking at free agent targets here, right? So right, like how how
1: you want to allocate?
0: Can you can you even do the barbershop thing though, even if you want it without moving Garland? I don't know if you can. Even if you wanted to, to still build out a functional roster now. Yeah, because otherwise, how yeah. are you going to do it? You're going to have Bevilia Garland making five million playing on your fourth line. You're going to have Bavilia playing on your fourth line. You know, like that's where it becomes, you mm-hmm. know, how we talk about Louis Erickson finding himself on the fourth line, making 6 million. Mm-hmm. Like, do you want to be in that position? So I don't think you can, you can do that on the wing, unless you're moving somebody out still. And as far as I know, nothing is imminent as far as any trades or, or anything like that. But it is interesting though, when you start looking at what options Vancouver may have BIC, because one thing we have learned is people love copying what, what has success in the postseason. Sidebar, real quick, before we get to what Elliot Friedman had to say about a certain big defenseman in Vancouver. So, and Elliot mentioned he spoke to somebody who kind of wondered if, if Vancouver is following the Florida model and mm-hmm. in trying to do what Florida did in terms of, hey, look at how Florida did it. And hey, I mean, I can't sit here and tell you if that's what they've been talking about behind the scenes or not, or that's what they're wondering about. It makes sense that people ask that question and wonder about it. The one thing I will say about this team, though, is it was very clear when Rutherford came in, they had a two or three year timeline. Mm-hmm. And it was very clear that as soon as they were able to clear some space, they were going to be aggressive. Like, I don't think this team looks at Florida and says, oh, this is our chance now. I think they even had, like, maybe this this goes the other way. Like, I think they were pretty sure about what they wanted to do as soon as the season ended. Like, it was very clear right. that they wanted to be very aggressive about making the team better. We all wondered, how are you going to clear cap space? especially either for the... deplete assets to move a Garland or a Bessa or... This route, or use a buyout, but Mm -hmm. it's like you know, and I don't think they used a buyout because they watched Florida play. I think all along the plan was for them to be significantly better this season. It was just a matter of how can we do that, and it's pretty clear whether now. Hey, it wasn't all they're doing because a lot of contracts on the books, but they did confound their own cap situation with -hmm. the signings they made. I mean, they put themselves in a in a in an an unenviable position because. They kind of had to bite the bullet somewhere to clear cap space eventually. Do you think they built this with the idea? It's like, hey, we we have this in our back pocket. Always. I think I, I think clearly now. Mm-hmm. Yes, because I don't think you just kind of go to the owner and say now, say, hey, how about buying this guy out? Mm-hmm. I think you float the idea and you talk about it in the past. Say, we don't want to do this, but could we if we had to? And if you knew you could do it, then you always knew in the in your back pocket that you had a chance to get out of, out of this.
1: Uh, 650 fifty, six fifty. Let's write off a couple of texts here. Uh, how much cap space do the Canucks actually have for this offseason? season? So as it stands, somewhere around six and a half. Uh, but pending Besser and Garland and LTI uh, situations, a little bit more. But some transactions can open up. But right now, it's six and a half. Um, and I shouldn't even say LTI or gives you cap space. It just you're you're going to be able to overspend. You can't overspend, right? Um, you're using
0: flexibility is what yeah. you have.
1: You have flexibility. Uh, this one, there's too much Jim Benning PTSD within the fan base. If they miss the playoffs, Alvin Rutherford will be responsible, hundred percent responsible. Now, well, again, that's what we're talking about. It's like
0: most of it has been flushed away. Now, it has. I mean, you're getting to the point now where you can't make too many excuses about what was here anymore. I mm-hmm. mean, what's the biggest, most onerous contract that's left over now? It's the Garland one, and yeah, the but that's Myers not even overly no, no. But I'm saying yeah. the big ones. That's it, it's Garland, it's, it's Myers. and Myers, right? Yeah. And on Tyler Myers, we've all been wondering, like, hey, does Vancouver have a chance to uh, trade Tyler Myers? I mean, when did can the Canadian trade Tyler Myers? We all know about his bonus, the five million dollars bonus that's due to be paid in September. And hey, does the market open up after that? Considering what we saw in the postseason with big defensemen, do people look at Tyler Myers differently? And well, that's something that Elliot Friedman explored in some of the conversations he had around the Stanley Cup Final. Here's Friedman from the Jeff Merrick Show talking about Tyler Myers potentially on the trade market.
2: Like the thing about Myers is, like, I, I was talking to someone at, at the Stanley Cup about Myers, and you know, they said to me, "You look at," and and we talked about this on the pod today about. You know Vegas's defense and Colorado's defense and Tampa's defense. Yeah, like if if you put Myers into a situation where with a you know with a really sound team and li- like 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 you watch the way that some of these Stanley Cup teams play defense, and there's room for Myers in this league. And you know now every, he's got one year left, and everyone's going to haggle about the bonus because that's what everyone does. But, like, like, I was mm. just talking to a couple guys about it, and they're like, there's no way there isn't room for Myers somewhere. Mm. Like, someone's going to – and he said more than one. Like, there's going to be teams looking at the way the Stanley Cup teams play defense in the last three years, and floor is a bit yeah. different because they weren't as long and lean and lanky. But they're like, someone's going to look at that and say, Tyler Myers can easily fix fit, uh, fill one of those six spots on mm. our team. Like I I I think I understand everybody's haggling over the bonus, but like the idea that there isn't a spot for him on a good team, like I, I find that crazy.
0: That's Elliot Friedman on Tyler Myers with Jeff Merrick today, talking about how there is a place in the league on a good team in the top six for Tyler Myers. Man, that's a lot of wish casting, I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think more than anything, what I'm looking at is you have an opportunity with an expiring contract that's mm-hmm. due to be 6000000 million. Don't bring term back when you move that contract. You have an opportunity yes. here. And hey, listen, I, and I can see the... You're saying if you move it prior to the signing bonus. Signing, signing bonus. Yeah. Or even after the signing bonus. I think after the signing bonus... Now, it really depends
1: on the type I, of player. I, I think after the signing bonus, suddenly you have a, a, a rental. You have a rental, and that's what I'm saying. That's, that's interesting. And yeah. that's what I, I mean. I, I don't know you approach that as bringing term then.
0: No, I, I think what what I mean is like if there's a world and we were kind of throwing this the idea about if you hey do you do you move a Myers type and take somebody back who has some m- money left on his contract maybe mm-hmm. a Connor Murphy type and it's like I tried saying that last year no Nobody I nailed at me I know and now it maybe makes sense but the more I think about it are you not better off considering how important the flexibility is for you to either get through this year with Myers mm-hmm. or just move him at the deadline and clear the six million completely off your books next season and then not repeat the same mistake that happened with the previous regime, we mm-hmm. had all the expiring contracts, and then instead of letting it expire or moving them out at, as expiring, these at the deadline or whatever it was, you ended up adding term and, and taking away your flexibility. I think that's going to be the biggest um, temptation to resist because I think with Myers, not only are you going to have options once the bonus gets paid, I think teams are going to come looking at you and saying like, hey, do you want this guy in return or you want yeah. this or that? I think it changes significantly. And I would, te- I would resist that temptation because if you can get net, as an expiring contract next year, if he plays decently th- throughout the year, get an equivalent of a second round pick at the deadline for Tyler Myers. And we don't have a second next year, especially
1: when you're, you're retaining and there's it, it. It'll be like 120 grand, basically, is what a team is going to be playing if you trade him for retention at the deadline. Yeah, it's like nothing for a team.
0: No, and that's why like this is an asset for the organization that they can flip for something. Mm-hmm. So I, I would hold to that attempt because, like, I mean. There was a world where Vancouver would have, could have held on to Jay Beagle in that final year and then traded him at the deadline and retained half the salary. And he would have been a deadline right. piece where they got something for him. maybe a fourth, maybe a third, you know, checking third, a fourth line center that can win draws, a righty that wins a lot of face-offs, good on the PK. Those things have value if you all of a sudden are willing to hold on to guys a little bit. And that would be my temptation with him that I would resist. And same thing with Bavillier. I think those are the two guys that can give you something. And as much as I think those are the guys where teams will say, hey, we'll take that guy off your hands, but we'll give you this guy that has a little bit of turn. Right. Resist that urge. Uh,
1: this one, uh, I hope the Canucks ride out with Myers instead of paying to rush it off of the books. 650 650
0: uh, keep coming in with the texts. Yeah, we'll read more of your text messages on the other side. We are going to ch- chat with our friend Fan- Frank Sierra Valley. What is he hearing around the Vancouver Canucks and what could happen ahead of the draft, which is nine days away? And that's next here on Canucks Central. Get smarter when you listen to Hockey Talk, the Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. on Canuck Central at Satin Bick, Dan Riccio we'll be back tomorrow we're going to be joined by Frank Cerro Valley coming up in a couple of minutes time daily face off to break down what is happening with the Vancouver Canucks heading into the off season with the draft being just over a week away can't wait for the draft to get here, honestly. I mean, the trades are a fun part of it, but obviously all the draft picks themselves and everything that may be coming up, that is the other part of it. And we'll talk some more about the draft and what the Canucks may be looking to do uh, as the week goes on here, especially leading up to next week as well. Next Wednesday. It's Wednesday, Thursday this time. A bit different than previous I like it. years. I like yeah. it. Wednesday, Thursday, you have a buffer a day, and then it's we're getting right into the mm-hmm. uh, the free agency period which begins on July 1st so buffer day after the draft and we're right into free agency so everything is happening pretty quickly this year and that's happening next week all right uh, let's welcome in Frank Valley into the conversation and as always you can check him out on Daily Faceoff and the Daily Faceoff rundown a great listen, as always and also the live shows and and Frank I mean you know uh, ever since you've been on this radio station you and I go back many years chatting as well but it seems like the, the Vancouver Canucks have been the, the, the t- main topic of conversation in terms of drama and big decisions and moves to happen. And uh, it, it was pretty cool to see Vancouver kick things off when, when the offseason truly began with the Stanley Cup final being over, buying out Oliver Ekman Larson. So so more content coming from the local team here, Frank.
3: Yeah, no shortage of stuff to chew on, that's for sure. And chew on, that's what the Canucks are going to have to do for eight years With Oliver ekman Larson's cap hit. Um, I have some thoughts. Uh, I'm sure you've relayed some of yours, and I guess... Share your thoughts, Frank. Share them. Oh, okay. Well, since you asked... (laughs) It's an open um, floor. Live mic. I I would just say what it represents to me is a failure that bridges two different regimes. Mm -hmm. The easy part is to point out that... this trade never should have happened under the Jim Benning regime, that kicking the can down the road and taking on a player and contract that was really uncomfortable at the time in order to essentially get rid of three problematic deals that were only on your books for one more year, that's the easy part to point out. The more difficult and more nuanced conversation is why did this regime feel the need to back itself into the corner with regards to acquiring more salary this past trade deadline, instead of finally once and for all alleviating the pressure point that it existed to the point where the Canucks really had so few options that this ended up being one of the most palatable and I can understand the sort of immediate gratification aspect of it. And maybe that's the only thing you have to live for as a GM in today's NHL is whatever is the easiest and quickest and dirtiest to get to where you want to get to. So I get that part of it, the minimal cap hit for this year. But what I don't understand is sort of the plotting and planning to end up at this point especially to pull the trigger on the first day possible of the buyout period, not even knowing where the cap was going to end up. So, Frank,
1: then, like, could I not argue, like, you're right, right? They, they've done things to add to future years as well. But couldn't I argue the fact that they did it on the first day? Like, doesn't this live in isolation of what it means for the rest of their cap? It, it just, it screams to me that they knew they were going to do this all along.
3: Well, that's, I mean, that's the thing, and and maybe there's some part of this that we don't know. Maybe the Canucks made the decision that Oliver Ekman-Larsen is miserable here, he doesn't like it, and the contract is untradeable, and this is essentially the Canucks version of the Ryan suter Zach Parise buyouts on a way lesser scale, and those teams pulling the trigger on the massive buyouts that they did is really a cause for courage uh, of, hey, this is not so bad. You can live and play and succeed with dead cap money on your books. And we had to do this because this makes our team better in the short term. And if that's the answer, and it's just one that they can't really say out loud, then I think they should be commended because then that means that they have a real good sense and feel of their team, the locker room dynamic, and everything that goes on. And they made a gut call that their team is going to be better off with addition by subtraction. Well, but if it's something else, mm-hmm. if it's purely just cap dynamics, then I have a hard time arguing or understanding why you would need to pull the trigger like that on day one. And, and I think, you know, because...
0: You're right, because everything we kept hearing was Vancouver was reluctant to use this buyout. Anytime we asked, I mean, we asked publicly, and I you know anybody asked in private. They got the same type of message, whether it was us, I, you, or anybody else. The first thing I thought
3: of, guys, was, sad I asked you three weeks ago, what's the chance on a 1 to 10 scale of an Oliver Ekman-Larsen buyout? And your response was 2. Yeah, that, that was the sense. And, and you know what? Anytime we asked, even like, you know, hey, in private, it was
0: that's not what we're looking to do. We're reluctant to do this. So it, it was either they were, they were lying to themselves or lying to us. Either you lie to yourself thinking OEL could regain his form as a top four defenseman or you didn't want to give up your leverage or give anything away. Because when we watched OEL this year, all we kept saying was, how can you possibly have him on this team and be successful for a guy who's making almost eight million? But isn't good defensively. Can PK. You don't need him on the power play, anyways. Like there was literally no spot for OEL on this roster unless you were forcing him to be on this team.
3: And I, I guess I can understand where, like, but I'm so fascinated to see what happens next. Like this is yes, you, you know, you mentioned the idea of this, this move being made in isolation of the cap, and I, and I also, I don't think that that is a real thing like I think every single mm-hmm. facet of the salary cap is connected to something else there yeah. is really nothing that lives in isolation but we'll be what will be fascinating to isolate is what is Oliver Ekman Larson's impact at a lesser cap hit of course mm-hmm. on a good team on a on us a, on a well-supported defense corps because I, I'm not saying he's going to come out and be any sort of game breaker or game changer. And every player, when he's freed from the shackles of his, you know, the prism with which he's viewed mm-hmm. through cap hit purposes, you know, every player looks better and, and different. He's got a lot to prove, but my, I suspect that he'll he'll look vastly better somewhere else. I think he's going to be fine,
0: I mean, especially if he goes to a team that needs somebody on the power play, on the second unit even, or you know he gets to play in a, in a sheltered role. If he gets a little money to go on the third pair, I think he's going to be just fine. I mean, It's just the money's way too much and you can't play 25 minutes a game. I think that's the biggest issue there with OEL. But you mentioned for Vancouver, what's next? And th- the thing I've gathered is, I don't think they're going to be afraid here, Frank, to go after big names. Just because they had to buy somebody out and they had to pay a lot of money to get rid of OEL, I don't think it's going to make them afraid. And I'm not saying reckless, but I don't think they're going to be afraid of playing in the big pond uh, in the free agent market or the trade market here
3: okay so now you got to spill some deets so if you if you think they're not afraid what like give me a logical thought process like where do you where do you point to obviously improving the defense core especially now that there's an even bigger hole in it is going to be right up at the top of the priority list but accomplishing that on the free agent market is going to be really difficult to Mm -hmm. do with this year's class what do you like is it it's got to be on the trade front, right?
0: I think so. I mean, on defense, unless you're going after Ryan Graves, which I do I guess does profile for a left-D to play with Heronic. They need that type of defenseman who's good defensively, mm-hmm. can PK. So unless they're they're playing in that market trying to go after a guy like him, Orlov obviously, I think it's too high a market and a bit older. And if they if and if it's not that, you look at the center market. They love to have wingers like Barbashev, for instance. Maybe they think he can play center. Like In the free agent market, those are the types of guys I wonder about. But if you're trying to make a big improvement to the defense or a third-line center, that's probably going to have to be the trade market if they can make hockey deals in that sense. But like, I don't think if they, if they can clear a winger, for instance, like the Barbashev type of player, I think is exactly the profile they want up front.
3: Makes sense. I could totally see that in terms of a forward perspective. But I just think it's so much harder to build your team through defense and— that's really the glaring weakness of this Canucks team already that especially when you figure that at some point over the next I don't know 10 months you're gonna see Tyler Myers playing somewhere else most likely how do you then you know that becomes yet another body to fill
1: you mentioned Myers we were kind of talking about him uh, at the end of the last segment um is, is that one still most likely in February, or is there a chance, now that anything is possible, like an OEL buyout, is there a chance we see that come to a conclusion before July 1?
3: Well, that's one part of this OEL buyout that I was fascinated by, is sort of the financial muscle that the Canucks were willing to flex. Mm-hmm. I mean, to spend $19.5 million to tell someone to go away is a pretty significant transaction. And... To think about the bonus money that's owed to Tyler Myers in September, um, that obviously sets itself up for if the Canucks wanted to make that change and there's more, pardon the pun, change available to spend, mm-hmm. then that that would seem to open the door to that even before the season starts, let alone February. How big, how drastic of a change do the, do the Canucks want to make? And I also view this oel buyout through this prism of the reason why like let's let's go back this is this is the driving factor the driving force in every single thing that the vancouver canucks do let's go back to what the mission and mandate is and that's to try and make the playoffs starting this next season Mm -hmm. because if not you're not pulling the trigger on this oel buyout because what's really attractive about it is the flexibility that it provides right here and here and now and so if the plan is to try and make the playoffs then you would think after especially after paying five of the six million bucks that you'd want to keep tyler myers into the season and move him if you fall short of expectations at the trade deadline as a valuable trade chip who has very little real cash dollars remaining on his deal you'd have to think that's the thought process Mm -hmm. and I think, if anything, that OEL buyout reaffirmed the push to make the playoffs this season, and Mm -hmm. I think the only trouble – it's admirable – I think the only trouble with that is, you know, you can go the wrong direction pretty quickly if the right moves aren't made, and you end up in a spot sort of where the Canucks have been the last couple years where they pushed and pushed and didn't get the right pieces and still fell short anyway. It becomes a high wire. act, That's the scariest right? thought. Yeah,
0: well, it's a high wire act because you have no no margin for error. Like even these moves they have now. I mean, they have flexibility, and there is a world where if they can if they can add you know a defenseman, a third line center, and, and something else that maybe they can kind of get into the mix, but they can't get those decisions wrong because they'll be capped out again, and they'll be out of assets again. So you're back to the same position of. You have a chance, but you can't get this wrong. And it, it, the other part about this too, which was also very clear, Vancouver was leveraged heavily because of their cap situation. Teams were obviously throwing them anvils and trade discussions, especially around guys like Connor Garland and, and such. Do you get the sense that maybe that changes now with Vancouver having flexibility? Not that all of a sudden they get a you know asset back for Garland, but can they maybe make you know a more fair trade now potentially? Now that they're not against up against the wall the same way they were.
3: I don't know that it really changes all that much. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, the price is still kind of the price for that player. Yeah, I think the one dynamic that could change or the one sort of function that could change in the dynamic is is purely the cap space and what's available to teams, which we should know in the next eight days.
1: Will this buyout uh, motivate others to maybe explore it just cuz now that someone was so daring to pay 19.5 will someone look at it and say hey what's 12 million to us when someone else is paying
3: 19.5 I don't think so I think when you look at um really that it's it's not so much the real dollars cuz I think the one thing that people sort of look at the wrong way when it comes to you know, viewing this from an owner's perspective, yeah, it's, it's a significant choice to pay someone to go away, but also the inverse is true in that to pay someone $30 million to stay that you don't really like when you could potentially save a third of that and $10 million or 10 and a half, that's, that's also some real and significant savings to your bottom line. Like, I don't know how exactly team finances and books work, but I'd imagine there's some sort of bad debt or something that you could write off that helps you in some sort of odd way. Um, it's a it's a real thing. And and to think about it from that perspective, I think also changes the view of, well, at least there is some real savings in this at the end to pay a guy that we didn't want to have here anyway. So I uh, the function of it, I think works pretty well in terms of the cap. I just – it's it's really the eight years and it's the cap hits that come in the middle of that deal that I think would scare most teams off. But I mentioned off the top the idea that the Minnesota Wild are playing with triple – essentially triple the amount of dead cap space at the height of the OEL deal and are doing it in a cap environment which has been flat and um, – you know, you're thinking the Canucks are at least projecting that it's going to be in probably the $95 million range by then, that four and s- $4.7 million and change, it's, it's not great, it's not ideal, but at least it's not crippling. And we've seen the Minnesota Wild be a 100-plus point playoff team that in this spot between bridging uh, the team that they had before to the other side and some of the young pieces that they have in the middle – They've filled these years, you know, at a time that they can't really be all that aggressive. They've they've really filled them in quite admirably.
0: No, I mean, and that's kind of the big thing. Now, in terms of what's happening around the league as far as, you know, which teams to kind of keep an eye on, is Winnipeg on top of the list in terms of big players that they can look to move right now?
3: They are for me. Look, Calgary is is intriguing. I think some of the pieces that the Philadelphia Flyers are going to unload is interesting. Uh I'm wondering how aggressive a team like St. Louis is going to be, knowing that they have two extra first round picks to wield. Um, there's a few different hotspots, so to speak, but it's still the Jets for me that take the cake because they have the premier young center on the market in Pierre-Luc Dubois. They have the premier goaltender available in Connor Hellebuck. To think that, you know, Mark Shifley, like at the point in his career, you know, he's, he's 30 years old and has a sub $7 million cap hit and scored 40 goals last season. And he's a true center. Like if the Canucks are going to be perusing the JT Miller market, that's their chief competition. One year left on Shifley before paying him is his contract really going to be that much bigger than than JT Miller? The the extension that he signs? I I don't know. I think it's probably comparable. Uh Shifley hasn't gotten to the heights that Miller has gotten to point production-wise, but um you know, I I think has a ton of interesting assets and attributes to his game that makes him really attractive. So his, um, you know, it, it's a fascinating comparison and thought and, and JT Miller and Shifley will be the same age in the first year, I believe of their next deals. So, um, it, it's, it's certainly an interesting comp nonetheless. Um, and, and just another reason why I think the jets have some real value, like their next, their third most interesting piece is a guy who plays at a level way above his cap hit and as a center, um, I think that's a pretty good spot to be in if you're the Jets.
1: Which teams uh, kind of confuse you as you get ready for these last uh, 10, 12 days as we get ready for uh, free agency in the draft? Uh, is there a team that you kind of look at, if not Vancouver, uh, that, that you're just kind of concerned about what the next 10 days is going to look like for them?
3: Um, I don't really know what to make of the Nashville Predators. Mm-hmm. Are they rebuilding? Like you would seem to think based off of their trade deadline, that they are, but they still have a number of sort of top heavy pieces that I don't think you can trade. And where are they going to like, what's their route here? What's their blueprint for success? Um, I have some similar questions about the San Jose Sharks. Like, how do they find a, a taker for Eric Carlson? How do they readjust their expectations? I'm fascinated to see what the Carolina Hurricanes do. They to me, Carolina has arrived at a crossroads. Not only do they have to figure out a contract for Sebastian Ajo, but they're two, you know, two of the pieces of their defense core that have been the backbone of that team. In Brett Pesci and Brady Shea are both uh, also due extensions. Carolina, we know, likes to get ahead of this. They like to engage in that conversation early to find out what the market looks like for those players. And then they don't really like paying market value on top of that. What about the Boston Bruins? Mm-hmm. They've got a ton of interesting decisions to make. Uh, first off, starting with our Patrice Bergeron and David Krejci coming back. And if not, what do you do with your salary cap? How do you find a way to maybe trade Taylor Hall and keep Tyler Bertuzzi? Which defensemen are you moving out to make room for some of the guys that you'd like to keep? And I'm assuming that Dimitri Orlov is walking to free agency. The Florida Panthers want to be aggressive in adding to their defense. Detroit, Ottawa, and Buffalo are all in that sweet spot where their rebuild is hitting the next stage. How can they continue to add to their teams? Like, Those are just a few of the fascinating teams that I have my eye on over the next two weeks.
0: Getting specific on Boston a little bit, Why do we always keep hearing Brandon Carlo's name on the trade market? I mean, considering, you know, big righty defenseman, good defensively, you know, physical, can do a bit of everything, not good offensively, obviously, but it always seems like his name's on the market. And sometimes it feels like, hey, maybe you can get him relatively cheap. What do you make of the Brandon Carlo situation in Boston? Is he really on the market? And and how much do you think it would cost to acquire him?
3: Well, I I think they have to consider everything when it comes to their defense core, basically outside of McAvoy and Lindholm and Carlo, you know, makes his way into the mix. I think partially because of the term that's remaining on his deal four more years at 4.1 million. And part of it is because I think the NHL sat has really struggled to evaluate players that especially defensemen that don't put up big offensive numbers. And That's the one real skill set in today's NHL that teams, I think, struggle to quantify is the impact of a guy who is a defensive type defenseman. And so I think that's part of it, that people look at it and say, well, okay, so if he is a defensive defenseman, what where is he best? What exactly does he do well? And is that skill set commensurate to what he's being paid right now? They're definitely in conversation and open to moving Matt Grizzlick, Mike Riley is a buyout candidate, and of course Derek Forbort. Um, so they've you know, they they have so many pieces to fill on their team with such little cap space. You know, you mentioned dead cap space. They're starting next season with a four and a half million dollar bonus overage. So let's pretend that the cap is only going up a million dollars to eighty-three five. Everyone else is starting at 83-5, well, except for the Canucks and some other teams that have some buyouts. But they're, the Bruins are starting at $79 million. And so they, they have a lot to try and squeeze in to bring back a team that can now compete with David Pasternak and McAvoy and, and Lindholm and probably Linus Olmark um, to be that core to try and have another really good year.
0: Uh, final one here before we let you go. Uh, is there a more confusing, confounding team than the Islanders right now? Considering like how capped out they are, how old they are, and you know Lou Lamorello still running the ship, and it, it, you know Sorokin has a year left on his contract. I look at that team and I kind of wonder, like, what are they really gonna do, and what options do they truly have here? I mean, they went all when they went all in getting Bo Horvat, obviously.
3: Yeah, I think they're in a really interesting spot. I think in a lesser way the Washington Capitals are too. Um, And the Pittsburgh Penguins, like teams with an aging core that are mostly term committed that don't really have the option or opportunity to bring in new faces and new pieces. Like you can change out the dynamic of your bottom six, but given the minutes played and whatever else, how much of an impact is that really going to make? And the Islanders the one team of that group of three that have the, you know, generational goalie in Sorokin, I think one of true five or six difference makers, game breakers, whatever you want to call it, guys that you can rely on consistently night in and night out. I have him as one of 17 franchise players in the entire league. Um, You know, how do you waste these years in his prime With also, you know, essentially, you know, envision to your point, I envision Lou Lamorello walking around in handcuffs. Like, what, how much can he do even if he wanted to do something? I can't think that this team thinks that it's best to try and run it back again. I just don't know what changes are possible.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens with that team and what else happens around the National Hockey League. And Frank, we always appreciate your time. Look forward to chatting with you next week. Then we'll only be days and hours away from the NHL draft.
3: Yep, I'll talk to you guys from Nashville next week.
0: You got it. That is Frank Sarah Valley, and as always, Frank Sarah Valley is a presentation of presentation of Angry Otter Liquor. Frank Sarah Valley and six fifty, brought to you by Angry Otter Liquor, your game day destination. Visit twenty eight locations from Vancouver to Kamloops. Angry Otter Liquor, great stuff as always from Frank Sarah Valley, and you know, looking at. Um, that's the names we mentioned. I was looking at the inbox and everyone's like, no, on Carlo. Yeah, Brandon Carlo's name kind of comes out. But, I mean, you look at righty defensemen available, it's either going to be guys that are about to get paid who yeah. get traded soon, like Hironic almost, right, and you got to pay him in a year's time. Expirings like uh, Brad Pesce, or you kind of have to take a dice roll on a player like a Brandon Carlo. That's kind of, you know, when it comes to the righty defenseman market, that's what you're looking at, essentially. I just wonder, though... Like, if you're
1: Boston, you kind of have your uh, top four sorted out. And you mentioned earlier, if they get rid of a contract, can mm-hmm. they sign a Bertuzzi or yeah. an Orlov and bring them back? Well, if they bring back Orlov, well, you have Orlov, McAvoy, Lindholm, Carlo. Yeah. So why would you break up your top four when there's a, a player a million dollars cheaper who's a little bit older, like Derek Forbort? Is that the one that they try to move out Easier to open to up? Out.
0: It's easier to move up. It's one year. It's expiring. I mean, they could just buy out Riley. They can buy out Forbert.
1: I'm assuming Riley's getting bought out just in general. Um, I feel like the external trade market would want Carlo to be available. I just think if I'm Boston, it just makes more sense to try to move out a Derek Forbert, and now I can still remain competitive. I have my top
0: four. I don't have to solve that problem. I just wonder if they're they're – open to moving him because they don't love him i just wonder about that that's the only thing i wonder about and you know that's why kind of that's why i phrase the question that way to frank about why do we keep his keep hearing his name out there all the time
1: but if they move him i just feels like okay then bergeron and all these guys like then i think that regime is probably done i'm not saying carlo defines it but if they get the okay from bergeron it's like hey i'm coming back yeah are uh, they gonna look at carlo and say well we have to remove this piece to try to re- continue ourselves to be competitive, it's like no, they they want so to have a solid top four. Yeah, well, that's
0: the thing, and I mean, uh, you know, Rager texts in and says, "What about Orlov? Two years, two years at three point five or something to be paired with Ronick? Maybe three point five per month? Yeah, right. I mean, I, so there was a report that he's looking for seven million plus. I would imagine the seven million is like on a shorter term deal, right? You know, three years, four years, or whatever it is. But if you're signing Orlov, despite him being 31 years old, you're talking about him yeah. getting like at least 25, 30 million. Yeah. So Godspeed to that. All right. Uh, we'll continue the conversation with Don Taylor next on Canuck Central.